Hi girls, love your podcast. This is Dano from Australia, so a little bit of the way up. I uh, love what you've been doing, and I haven't caught up to all the episodes, but I understand that there haven't been a lot of people calling. This could be a monumental moment. Piece of uh, trivia I am really liking to chase. I've been hitchhiking through a little bit of Eastern Europe over the last couple of months, and there's a some kind of Russian song that was on the radio or on some guy's tape deck. It sounded like a Soviet pop song or something, and as best as I can remember, it was very catchy, but as best as I remember, and I'd love if you could find it for me, um, the song's lyrics or gist was something like, No cactula, no tactula, cactula, no tactula, cactula, no tactula. So something like that, if you can find out what it is or um, reach out to your contacts, I'd love to find out what it is. But uh, great show that you girls are doing. And I'll stay tuned and look forward to further episodes. Thank you kindly. I'm sorry, Deno. <laughs> but we failed. And I have, I'm just like right now like bursting with excuses. Just like so many explanations <laughs> and reasons for why we failed. I'm really happy that you called. And we really highly encourage others to be like Dano. And we'll also try and maybe we'll succeed on a future yeah what happened was so that little snippet of the song that you sang not only did we ask like directly my friends who are specifically pop culture versed and then generally my vk friends and then even more generally the russia subreddit everyone basically sent us the same song which was a song that I also found by quickly Googling the words that you sang. So it really didn't take that much work on their part. And it's clearly not the song you're looking for. But we're going to play a bit of it now so that everybody can experience what we experience. So thanks for calling, Dano. Call again sometime. We love what you're doing with the voicemails. Yesterday, November 4th, is a national holiday in Russia, and it's called National Unity Day or Day of People's Unity. And when you hear that, like that sounds like something really Soviet, right? Yeah. All the peoples together and all the different ethnicities and nationalities. But it's not. <laughs> so, okay. The thing that's funny about this holiday is that it was celebrated between the years 1613, when it was established, okay. and 1917, when the re revolution happened. So it was a pre-revolutionary holiday, and it's called the Unity of the People Day. But the event that it marks, the historical event that it marks, basically is Russia throwing off the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, like expelling these like invaders from the West, which were... The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth at the time was like, actually took up a large amount of land in what's now Eastern Europe. This is actually a really interesting time in Russian history. It's between the two dynasties, like before the Romanov dynasty started. And the Romanov dynasty, which is the one that like, the family that ruled up until 1917, they basically like came into power in 1613 and established this holiday. It's not the only thing they did, but... <laughs> 
<laughs> a 400 year legacy yeah and there had been this like between 1598 when the other dynasty ended and 1613 there had been this like a like lots of wars going on which are now all together called the polish muscovite war wars like civil unrest in russia because there was like no czar and so the point of the holiday is that like despite the fact that it was between two dynasties and there was like anarchy and chaos or whatever the people like <laughs> the people quote unquote like across classes or whatever came together to like expel the foreign invader okay okay so <laughs> the holiday like stopped being celebrated and once the soviet union started so it's celebrated november 4th the day that during the Soviet Union that people celebrated the October Revolution. You know how they had like the old calendar? No. Russia like operated according to a different calendar. Which calendar? Can we just not worry about exactly which calendar it is? But like the point is it's called the October Revolution, right? And so it had to have it didn't happen in November. Happened at that time on October twenty fifth, which is now marked as November seventh. Just keep in mind that throughout the Soviet Union so this whole Polish holiday stopped being celebrated. What was celebrated on November 7th, which is like the date of the October Revolution, according to the whatever calendar, that was like a huge holiday during the Soviet Union, like with parades, etc. Lots of fanfare. And of course, like that holiday stopped being celebrated after the fall of the Soviet Union. But because... It's so close in date to this Polish holiday. What happened in 2005 was, I keep saying Polish holiday, but you know what I mean, this like Unity Day holiday. Um, in 2005, Putin reinstilled, like just like searched in the trash bin of it history. Stated. I was like, oh yeah, one time we expelled Polish people in 1613. So I'm just gonna make that holiday a thing again. People kind of say mostly because that holiday is November 4th and it's so close to November 7th that it kind of just like people are used to celebrating it. That makes sense, though. That makes sense. Yeah. It's not like the November 7th holiday like completely disappeared. Like people, especially people of communist leanings in Russia, still celebrate the October Revolution. Last thing about the holiday. Putin, you know, did his presidential like speech or whatever to congratulate the Russian people on their um, unity. Okay, so Putin like gave his speech and he said, Russians are united by this devotion to their country and this desire or like need to care, to take care of your country and to reject or like defeat external pressure. And he said that this like need or like, yeah, desire is the foundation of Russian statehood and the genetic and cultural code of the Russian people. This is the meat of the podcast. <laughs> have you ever, have you ever caught your, have you ever caught your profile reflection in the mirror? Yeah. 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 This shit feel like I won't ever make it home. This is She's in Russia, I'm Smith, and I'm in Brooklyn. I'm Lily, and I'm in St. Petersburg. So today we're talking about this series that was posted by 
Black Perspectives, which is a publication hosted by African American Intellectual History and Society. These articles were published between October 30th and November 4th, and they aimed to address the Russian Revolution and the African diaspora. It's like the interrelationship between those two things. Yes, the interrelationship. So in an attempt to sort of like organize the ideas that we found in these articles, we're kind of breaking up into three different categories of things. The first is how people have used the example of the Bolshevik Revolution and the practice of Marxism in the African diaspora. The second topic we're going to cover is the use of diaspora and Soviet practices, specifically using representations of people in diaspora, both representations and analysis of the systems in which these people are living to demonstrate the moral superiority of the Soviet Union as an anti-racist, equitable society. So looking at the oppression of black people in the American South or looking at the imperialism of the West across the continent of Africa. And then the third topic we're going to address is the overlap of these two things. So like what were the actual tangible projects that came from this transfer of knowledge between the Soviet Union to people living in diaspora and vice versa? The first article in this series was called was titled The Russian Revolution Africa and the Diaspora by Hakim Adi and he just is kind of like stepping through the history of how black intellectuals and authors responded to the Bolshevik revolution. And he just has a few nice quotes that I'm going to read. The Jamaican poet and writer Claude McKay referred to the October revolution as the greatest event in the history of humanity and Bolshevism as the greatest and most scientific idea in the world today. Another Jamaican, Wilfred Domingo, wondered, will Bolshevism accomplish the full freedom of Africa, colonies in which Negroes are the majority and promote human tolerance and happiness in the United States? To translate that, it's like the Soviet Union is like the first example of an alternative capitalist society, like successfully, quote unquote, existing, at least existing. And if black people are one of the oppressed groups of the capitalist system, then it makes sense to like look to the Soviet Union as a sort of guide. This article ends with this kind of sentiment, I would say, that like just because the October Revolution resulted in the Soviet Union doesn't mean that like people shouldn't try to actually have revolutions and like be agents of change. So I think it's he's trying to say in the end like it's important regardless of what you might think of like the entire history of the Soviet Union. Yeah, I mean at the very least he's like demonstrating that it meant something at the time to to people that were facing arguably similar struggles or like political settings. Yeah. And for the quote you read is like pretty striking, I would say, that someone would say it's the greatest event in the history of humanity and the greatest and most scientific idea. It must have felt very exciting at the time. Yeah. 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 So if you don't know who Claudia Jones is or was, she was a like pretty prominent black nationalist communist during the mid-century. I think she, she was born pretty early, 1915, according to Wikipedia. <laughs> Just funny to say someone was born early. Like, uh, compared to what? <laughs> compared to what? <laughs> she was born and immigrated to the U.S. as a child 
because of her like communist and black nationalist activities, she was actually deported in the 50s and ended up immigrating to the UK. But one of her main ideas and focuses that this article brings up is the idea of the black woman as like the primary agent of revolution mainly because expressed through this idea of like triple oppression, which according to this article, she did not coin, but this idea that black women are triply oppressed as laborers, as black and as women. And that if you focus a revolution with black women at the center, then if you liberate the most oppressed, then everybody will be liberated. And one of the core facts about this article that's important to know is this organization the common turn do you want to introduce that why yes i do the fact is that the common turn which is short for communist international a exists and b was very much involved in like supporting black nationalism in the u.s that's the core of the article but the point is that the communist international is one of the earliest soviet organizations it was founded in 1919 over the course of its history which was from 1919 to 1943 stalin dissolved it in 1943 there were a couple of like big gatherings seven actually not a couple during those years but the whole idea of the organization was to spread communism like around the world for for world revolution yeah the common turn explicitly supported the idea of black nationalism in the U.S. and what's referred to, which I didn't know, as the Black Belt Thesis. Black Belt Nation Thesis. Yeah. Black Belt Nation Thesis, which is basically that like black people living in the South are oppressed and should be able to self-actualize like as a separate nation, basically. Or what did I call that? Not self-actualize. Self-determination. Yeah, self-determination to be able to like separate. It's not like the com intern or Claudia... Jones, either of them, were encouraging that like black Americans separate from America and make their own country. But it was saying that like they can think of themselves as a nation that has a right to self-determination. That is like very Crimea. Well, it's very Crimea, but it's also very Soviet. Like it just makes me think about the idea that like nations can exist within a actual government state and the nation is based on culture and language and food or whatever you want to call it. Remember the whole like... yeah. Soviet inform, socialist inform, Soviet inform, nationalist inform, socialist in content. It's almost like using somebody's cultural identity, in this case, like being a black Southern American, as the vehicle for international socialism. It's like using what? This isn't the only thing. I'm not trying to like summarize what black nationalism means, but in some ways to me, this feels like using black Southern cultural identity as a vehicle for international socialism. Yeah, like the common turn, being like, okay, look, you as a people, as like an exploited class, like you should identify with each other as an exploited class. This is like part of the idea of black nationalism separate from the common turn. But the common turn's argument is like, identify with each other and not just identify, but like become communist. Communism should be the solution that you go to, to like be self-determined within a larger society. 
Right. And I, and I don't want to, like, I feel like we're framing it a little bit like, oh, the Soviets made this thing called a common turn and they, like, imposed it on black Americans. And I think that that's probably, no, like, no. a little off base. Like, the U.S. Communist Party was growing a lot during that time. And a subset of the people who were members of the Communist Party were black. And Claudia Jones in specific was, I think, attracted to, according to this article, attracted to the party by the promise of the new Soviet woman who was a full citizen with access to economic independence and birth control. Yeah. And she was a driving force within the U.S. Communist Party of really centralizing both black nationalism and this idea of black women's liberation. One theme that cropped up in this article, and I think also the original article that we addressed, is how to like augment Marxism for a black American or Cuban or Ethiopian context. And one of the things that black intellectuals would bring up often is the idea that Marxism falls short in its over-attention to class without recognition of gender or race. And by kind of bringing up this idea of triple oppression and really trying to center the struggle of black women specifically, Claudia Jones was trying to address that. So there's two other articles in this like topic of uses of revolution by people in, in diaspora. So which one should we talk about next? Let's talk about the one that is... The title is From Refuge to Revolution, Bolshevism's Evolution in Ethiopia. Wait, who's it by? By Kate Coucher. This one's interesting. This one is about the 1974 revolution in Ethiopia and basically saying that people who were like the, the instigators of the revolution in Ethiopia were like looking, directly looking back to the Bolshevik revolution. So yeah, the the Ethiopian revolution as 1974 overthrew the current emperor Haile Selassie? Haile Selassie? I don't know. It was a military revolution. This article is sort of looking at this relationship and mirroring between these two revolutions um, and saying that those who led the revolution were like very much self-aware of it being like the Bolshevik revolution because also in the Bolshevik revolution like there was I don't know also military support also there was like a coup before which is a parallel to the February Revolution in Russia. So there are these, like, I think kind of, like, wishy-washy, pretty wishy-washy mirrorings. But then what becomes interesting is the government, the Derg, that assumed power very much retrospectively decided to use Bolshevism as a kind of, like, tool, like, as a model, to use the language of Bolshevism and to kind of, like establish their rule for the next 15 years until the fall of the Soviet Union with explicit support from the Soviet Union at some point. Right. I have a good um, quote from the article to read that like gives very specific examples of this adoption of like a Soviet revolution by the Derg. New terms such as proletariat and broad masses were decisively introduced through posters, political cartoons, and publications. The Derg pushed the narrative that they had led a popular revolution against local feudal elites. Artists tasked with visualizing this version of events quickly turned to books of political cartoons and other revolutionary art from the Eastern Bloc for prototype images of popular socialist revolt. Whereas in Mozambique, the mid-1970s, artists 
designing revolutionary posters drew inspiration from Cuban brightly colored graphics of the third world solidarity. Ethiopia's artists saw Bolshevik and Eastern European graphic designs as more relevant to the revolution they were tasked with visually articulating. There's this explicit use of rhetoric and visuals from the Soviet Union, but like under this government, there was a purge. I, I guess you could say it's like similar to Stalin's purges. But there was also a purge of quote-unquote enemies of the revolution, just following along the Bolshevik line. And so, yeah, a bunch of Ethiopians were killed, thousands. Young Ethiopians, like students. A lot of them were students. Yeah, who were accused of being like quote-unquote enemies. I don't know. What was interesting to me and like kind of strange was the closing paragraph of this article. The closing paragraph of all the goddamn articles. This one, first of all, just says, like gives an amazing image, which I'll just read, which is that in 1984, with Moscow's support, Ethiopia's celebrations of the 10th anniversary of its revolution in 1984, complete with flashing neon hammers and sickles, would be one of the last great communist hurrahs before the end of the Cold War. That image is just gold, basically. Yeah, it is. Flashing neon hammers and sickles. But then, mm-hmm. like, then the last sentence is, there was painful irony, of course, in the Soviets celebrating this comradeship. It was with a regime whose total power had come at the expense of the lives of thousands of young Ethiopians, many of whom had known of the Bolshevik Revolution and had once been inspired by its transformative potential. And it's like, excuse me, it's 1984-2017 when you're writing this article... Are you not aware that that's not a painful irony? That's just a continued mirroring? Like, do you see how that's like a really odd, misinformed sentence? I mean, I agree with you. I think a lot of what this article is doing is like talking about how the like rhetoric and narrative around the Bolshevik revolution was used in the Ethiopian revolution without being willing to address the fact that like the Bolshevik revolution was also like a real thing that happened in which bad things happen well, to people. Well, then, then that the sentence still doesn't make sense because it was a painful irony that the Soviets were celebrating the comradeship with, like, these bad Ethiopians. It's like, okay, whatever. Two fucked up governments celebrated with each other. This is not the only article and the only place where I found a sort of, like, pretty glossy, romanticized image of the Soviet Union, Soviet history in general, the revolution in particular. Yeah. Not all of them. Not all of the articles are super glossy, but this is an example of like, that's like really revisionist and mildly frightening coming from an academic to me. Well, wait, no, I just want to give like a little space to you saying that because it's obviously something you bring up a lot where like leftists in particular or people that are particularly interested in Russian history tend to gloss over the really extreme atrocities of the Soviet Union in favor of just upholding the like people's revolution narrative so i think that it's good to to point that out when we come into actual contact with it so this is an example of it being in an academic context which makes me more upset than just a random leftist but like the biggest revision revisions of history that i like hear the most common errors are just to give you a summary the soviet union was not anti-semitic like official soviet policy was a example of gender equality for the entirety of its existence also false and if you want to hear more about that listen to our mother episode and the third one is this is the weirdest one because this is the most uncommon one which is that i don't think a lot of people would say that the soviet union during the soviet union that there like wasn't extreme contradiction between like what actually took place the 
history of repressions and purges and like the contradiction between that and the ideals of the revolution. I think that's just common knowledge. So it's a bit bizarre. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to discuss the incorporation of the African diaspora into Soviet cultural production for the spread of communism globally. So we're back, and now we're talking about kind of the other side of this interaction relationship between the Russian Revolution on the one hand and the African diaspora on the other hand, and we want to look at like manifestations in Soviet culture of a particular like stance on the African diaspora, which is basically the stance that like people of African descent around the world and in Africa are very much an exploited group under capitalism. Again, we're talking about like official cultural production. So like not only production, but also just like ideological stances on issues. So again, to remind you, like that means that the Soviet Union officially, its rhetoric saw itself as an anti-racist culture, an anti-imperialist, obviously anti-capitalist. One of the sort of like results of this position, it's not just about like, oh, we're creating this happy, magical, utopian society where, you know, we're like colorblind and there's no race or we're all like different ethnicities, but we all live together. It's like not exactly the melting pot. It's like a different metaphor. But the, one of the results of this position is that the Soviet Union is positioning itself as more enlightened, like morally higher than this like capitalist, morally fucked up west it's also important to note that the moral high ground the moral high ground is like a sort of stance that answers to the economic low ground basically in that like in general the u.s especially was like economically more powerful than the soviet union um especially in in the very beginning and so like one of the ways to sort of like combat the west is to be like okay well we're taking the we're like morally higher yeah and so the soviet union in general like again officially is like projecting not only is talking about this sort of harmonious culture within the borders of the soviet union but is projecting that anti-racist attitude outwards and specifically to people who belong to the african diaspora so on the one hand it's like a recruiting mechanism i guess you could say to like be like the answer to your oppression is communism and on the other hand it's as we as i just explained it's a justification the article that we want to talk about as like a specific example of this 
this anti-racist position that's projected outwards, is called, fittingly, Anti-Racism in Early Soviet Visual Culture by Christina Kiyair. So it says anti-racism in early Soviet visual culture, and it indeed is early Soviet in that it ends up really discussing one visual production in particular, which is a very short film made in 1932. I feel like we should just introduce that film itself. Can, do you think you can do that? Okay, so yeah, it's called Black und... I don't know how to pronounce this. Black, Black und Oit. It's literally Black and White. Oh, okay. Black and white. And it's a cartoon that's actually based off a poem, but... I'm going to talk... I can talk okay. about that. So it's set in Cuba, and it's essentially just a depiction of a fat cat white capitalist and a black Cuban laborer. And things that the author points out that I think is most important is this American imagery in it as well. So the film ends with images of black people being lynched chain gangs and prisons in america so the only part that remains of it is this like little six minute part on youtube so the first of all the name of this movie and the name of the poem like what how smith pronounced it black and white is just the words black and white in english like written in cyrillic so with like a it's not the words in in russian originally it was a poem the poem is by (laughs) mayakovsky who is an extremely famous russian soviet poet playwright artist actor I don't, I'm not going to like analyze the poem except for to say that it's important that some of the text in the short animated film that's based on the poem, some of the text is like directly quoted. And in the, the piece that's left on YouTube, the like piece that you can actually watch, that's like the main line that's towards the end of the poem is quoted just about like sugar and being like, if sugar is white, then a white person should make it or something. Yeah, the the direct quote from the poem, I have it right here, is, I beg your pardon, Mr. Bragg, why should sugar white white be made by a black Negro? And if you love coffee with sugar, then please make the sugar yourself. Yeah. There definitely is, like, a vague vein of paternalism. Yeah. It's really worth watching just for as, like, an artifact. I feel like it's that really weird type of, like, old animation where they do everything really slowly. like exaggerated like the facial expressions and movements are like kind of grotesque because they're so slow then you get that plus the like kind of horrible racial stuff that's being portrayed and it just like makes it like overall really (laughs) unpleasant in a way but worth watching worth watching one of the one of the things i did want to note about it was like one of the scenes where the like main character who's the black Cuban, is working in the fields, he's working next to a white person. And I feel like that was like mm-hmm. a subtle, you know, like, oh, workers of the world unite across racial lines. Yeah. I mean, it's a black and white cartoon and the black people are like ink black. And the two laborers, yeah, like the, there's a black and a white labor and they like look exactly the same, like physically, except for the skin color. And then like, yeah, the like capitalist sugar or whatever plantation owner or whatever it seems like barren guy is like this like fat really has a really awful face with like a huge mouth it's important to note that like this movie was produced this film was produced in the soviet union with no participation participation yeah by any either american or cuban black people but like the whole idea of it is to like Let's show the the horribleness of the expectation of exploitation of black people 
in Cuba, because that's sort of the setting of the poem, but then it transforms into like these particularly American images, as you mentioned, Smith, like the lynching and the chain gangs and stuff. Yeah, and and I think that like one of the other things to note in this context is that going back to the common turn, their involvement in like specific events. So during the Scottsboro Boys trials, there was a particular cartoon, and I'm quoting here, from the days leading up to the boys' first execution date in July 1931 that shows a caricatured fat capitalist in a top hat about to throw the switch with his hand outside the Scottsboro prison house. The long arm of the common turn reaches down from the proletarian sky and quite literally stops his hand in mid-motion. And I thought that that was an interesting image because Mm -hmm. it replaces, like, the KKK Southern white supremacist with the capitalist. Yeah. I wish that we had that image, but they just described the image because I guess they didn't have it. The author mentions before they talk about the cartoon that there was another movie that was supposed no. to be made that was like a real life, pe- real people movie, a feature length like film that would include like American black workers and like apparently the collaboration of Langston Hughes on the script. He actually wrote the script. The script exists, but they never made the movie, which really sucks because that uh, I, that would have been an amazing artifact. Yeah, it really would have been. Uh, one last thing I want to say about this is just like the author brings up kind of an idea we've talked about before, which is like the race paradigm in Russia is different than the or during the Soviet Union is is obviously different from the American one. Oh yeah. And she quotes Claude McKay, who we mentioned before, Jamaican-born poet of the Harlem Renaissance. He goes to Moscow, I think, and he says, "Russia, in broad terms, is a country where all the races of Europe and of Asia meet and mix. And so, to the Russian, I was merely another type, but stranger with which they were not fully yet familiar." They were curious with me, all and sundry, young and old, in a friendly, refreshing manner. Their curiosity had none of the intolerable impertinence and often downright affront that any very dark-colored man, be he Negro, Indian, or Arab, would experience in Germany and England. And then, like, her closing conclusion, having quoted Claude McKay, is, In McKay's perception, the Russian relation to blackness is one that comes into being in the moment of visual encounter, rather than being already scripted. This different Russian relation to blackness opens the possibility that earlier Soviet anti-racism may indeed offer a different historical precedent for contemporary attempts at white allyship. I'm glad that she wrote that it's not exactly fair to write that at the end of the article and then be like and goodbye okay because like this author is also really good about approaching all this anti-racist policy with a sense of skepticism but by saying like okay generally there's a skepticism towards this anti-racism especially in light of like current race issues and relations in russia right now but also during the soviet union generally there's a skepticism but she's like what if instead of being skeptical we could just say like, okay, but at the time, when we're talking about early Soviet 20s and 30s, the fact that a government had a official, very much official policy that was anti-racist was totally unprecedented and like especially unprecedented in comparison to the standards of other very powerful countries in the world at the time. Yeah, like, yeah. That's important. Yeah. Then she goes on to say, this is a quote, we can question the sincerity of this Soviet policy, but the anti-racist visual culture produced in the years following the Russian Revolution offers a unique and potentially instructive prehistory for understanding race and representation within current debates about white allyship. So that's like where she introduces actually the idea before the conclusion. Like, I 
don't feel like she pushes it that much throughout. I mean, that, that's pretty much like she's just saying it can potentially be instructive, right? And at the end, she says, we, it may indeed offer a different precedent for contemporary attempts at white allyship. But I don't know. I kind of want, like, are you able to, like, push at that a little bit? Because I feel like it's, like, it's just, like, the very beginning of an idea. Yeah. I mean, right. She doesn't, she doesn't lay out, like, what modern allyship would look like using this as a reference. But I feel like the first thing is that it's extremely explicit. So, like, this idea that there's a state policy on anti-racism, which is, like, not something that anybody really seems to have like anti-racism isn't like a core ideology in American politics or anything like that so I feel like that's like a good first step I feel like definitely not in the 30s but but not now either Lily come on like nobody's people don't run with like anti-racism as a core principle Hmm. okay obviously too she's like she's focusing on visuals which like I'm having a hard time understanding exactly how that would translate to now she's saying relation to blackness and as we talked about like it's really important that like the relationship to race in russia is different than in europe and in america by sort of like extension she says again this is like a conversation we have a lot but like she's like well one of the things is that they didn't have a history of african slavery and they had like their enslavement basically of the serfs for their own people serfs yeah I just don't know how to use that as a model because it's like, oh, okay, then the model, from that, the conclusion is the model is like, oh, well, we should have just not had slavery. Like, I don't know how to, I actually don't really understand what, like the relationship to blackness that she's portraying is one that's like pretty visually based and is about demonstrating that communism is good for black people because like the communism that the Soviets have implemented is inherently anti-racist or that's like one of their core principles. What I'm trying to understand, and I don't really understand her point either, but she's like saying there's another paradigm for not just race, but specifically for how blackness is seen in this, within the context of Russian history, which is the context of a lot of different ethnicities and nationalities being kind of like grouped together officially in a really like not particularly united way and then the soviet union added on to that history where people were like forced to be united and like the same group of like quite diverse people were all told that they were actually just like one people okay so these histories are the context and she's saying specifically it's not just about the relationship to race but that that relation that there's a relationship to blackness that is like more i almost want to say it's like more innocent or like wholesome according to her because of the very fact like what claude mckay says which is like black people are strangers to russian people so they have less preconceived notions it's innocent in its absence there's this other element which is like claude mckay talking about how oh all these different races mix in russia and it's just like not really accurate i wish that the idea was more developed because i just don't understand like except for this except for this concept of like russians aren't actually white it's hard to understand what else to conclude from this what is she proposing that we just erase all the history that caused people to be white supremacists how do you instill that innocence in a group of people who have like completely eradicated it since the birth of the nation slash i have a lot of problems with the idea that this innocence even exists and i think what we're talking about is more of just like it's almost just more of like an open racism (laughs) just like you're different from me because you have a different colored skin i mean it, it like unless just that like we really don't understand what 
Claude McKay's experience was in... When was he there? In the early Soviet Union. Yeah, like, what, the 30s? Maybe it was just, like, really utopian for a minute. If it was, like, if it was early enough still before Stalin started to sort of, like, repress things. I mean, if if nothing else, it was probably, like, a relief to go to a country where the dominant narrative of your life and your, like, everyday habits and the thing that you're personally thinking about and writing about, like, just isn't as much of a thing. You mean white supremacy? White supremacy as part of that, but yeah, just I feel that in particular a lot of what artists and authors during the Harlem Renaissance were grappling with was like race relations. And so to go to a country where that is, at least on the surface, explicitly not the case, you know, you go for two weeks and it probably felt good. We're going to take a break and when we come back we're going to talk about an example of tangible projects that were from this overlap in the African diaspora and the Russian Revolution. I like my girls just like I like my honey Sweet little selfish I like my women like I like my money Green little jealous Cause I'm a beautiful wreck A colorful mess But I'm funny Oh, I'm a heartbreak vet With a stone-cold neck Yeah, I'm charming All the pretty girls in the world but I'm in this space with you Call it out the lines again to find My fire will stay with you Heart, it will stay with you Fly great escapes with you oh. Okay, and we're back. So, Lily, this was the article you kept bringing up. The joyous article. So do you want to introduce it? I know that I'm still right now intellectually capable of reading the title. That's what wow. I know. So I'll do that. Yeah. The title is The Afro-Asian Writers Association and Soviet Engagement with Africa by Rosen Dragolov, I hope. Yeah. Okay. So this article basically talks about like the official formation of an Afro-Asian Writers Association. The context is just that like... During the Soviet Union, there was like a, an official writers association that if you weren't a part of your work wasn't really, wasn't published. So like this writers association thing isn't just like a fun like after school club. It's like how literature worked throughout Soviet history. This particular one is like the Afro-Asian Writers Association was kind of formed in opposition to the literary canon of the West, which is like very much writers being published in like Paris, New York, London, um, those is like the centers of literary creation. They had like congresses. They also had their own literary magazine called Lotus. The writers and the texts that are published by African and Asian writers between 1968 and 1991 in, this, in Lotus, basically the most prominent ones are like the post-colonial canon as we know it, contemporary post-colonial canon. Lotus, the journal, was like based at some point in Cairo and then in Beirut, and it was published in French, English, and Arabic. 
the only real point I want to like take away from this article is just like that the post-colonial coming together of post-colonial intellectuals was sort of like cradled by the Soviet Union. Like they were able to sort of like have a the official Soviet bureaucracy was able to kind of like be part of that by making it a writer's association rather than being like a independent movement. You know what I mean? Like it very much was an official sort of like Soviet institution. Okay, wait, the assumption would be that then there was like a motivation there, like the motivations we've been talking about, like why they wanted this to happen. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's it's the same. If you want to spread like communist ideals then you fund people who you have, you think you have the potential of influencing. I feel like he explicitly talks about how the Soviet Union believed that like literature had the capacity to really sway people politically. If you take for granted at that time, like there wasn't a cohesive organizing body for people from the quote unquote third world, and you're trying to influence using both hard and soft power, then this is one implementation of soft power. Yeah. It's cool though. Like the outcome is cool. Like regardless of what the intent was, it's a cool thing. That's the episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes. Rate us on iTunes. It takes no time at all. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at She's in Russia. Go to our website and sign up for our newsletter at she'sinrussia.com. And if you want to be like Dano and call in and have us fail to answer your question, give us a call at 347-292-7126. And we'll see you next week. Wait, wait, wait. I'd like to point out that that's a plus one. And we'll, we will change that on our websites for our international listeners. Plus one is the country code. And then you dial the rest of the number. If somebody were to refer to their penis as their member in a sexual context, I think that I would ask them to leave. <laughs> I'm more tolerant than you, I guess. Well, it's happened in Russian. It's happened in Russian, and that's a thing. And you just, like, grimace a little bit and continue on? Yeah, because I'm like, that word doesn't mean that. I just, like, tell myself, and I'm like, uh... <laughs>